Living in Los Angeles, I see a lot of creative ways in which people try to reverse the clock as far as aging is concerned. Some go to the spa, slathering themselves up with all sorts of creams and ointments to remove wrinkles and other telltale signs of wear and tear. Others undergo heavy plastic surgery, emerging like the living equivalents of Barbie and Ken dolls. And then there are those who take collagen or Botox injections to puff up their cheeks and lips until their faces swell up like balloons. Vanity has always been one of the more common, albeit poisonous, human qualities, but it's seemingly more common here than in other parts of the country or world. Believe it or not, there are those who have gone even further to, as the Red Hot Chili Peppers put it, break the spell of aging, two of whom are the subjects of today's episode. What do a Renaissance Spanish explorer and a 3rd century BC Chinese monarch have in common? What did they do to halt the advance of time, and how successful were they in their respective ventures? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. Had it not been for his own legendary exploits, chances are Juan Ponce de Leon would have been forgotten by history, overlooked and overshadowed by yet another explorer who served Spanish royalty, Christopher Columbus. In fact, it's believed that Leon was present on that fateful voyage in 1492. Luckily for him, however, he made a name for himself, first as a soldier, then as an explorer of great renown. Among his many achievements, he served as governor of the eastern half of the island of Hispaniola, the present-day Dominican Republic, and explored the island now known as Puerto Rico. But at some point during his several trips to the Caribbean, he supposedly learned, likely through contact with Native Americans, of an artesian well whose waters granted the drinker eternal youth. It was said to be located on the island of Bimini in the Bahamas. Thus, in March of 1513, he and a crew of several men departed from Puerto Rico to search for this mysterious island, only to end up, unknowingly, a month later in what would become the mainland United States, in a place he'd named Florida after the lush vegetation and flora he discovered there. While he didn't find the mythic fountain of youth on that first expedition, it didn't prove to be completely in vain. Exploring the coast, he ultimately discovered the Keys, as well as the Gulf Stream, that warm, powerful current that would help future generations of explorers easily navigate their ways home back to Europe. Chronicling everything he saw and experienced, he returned first to Puerto Rico, then to Spain, where he was officially given the title of military governor of Florida by the royal court at Aragon and granted permission to colonize this new frontier. But try as he might, Leon just couldn't shake the thought of the fountain of youth from his mind, and he was determined to find it. Such a discovery would not only make him famous, but filthy rich. Though he would return to Florida, he was first tasked with quelling a Native American uprising in Puerto Rico in 1515. This proved to be no easy feat, and, six years later in 1521, he was finally free and able to set sail for Florida again. Departing from San Juan, the regional capital of Puerto Rico, in February that year, he brought with him all the necessary supplies and provisions to start a fresh colony in Florida. These included two ships full of some 200 men, women, and children, who would serve as the first colonists. Seeds, tools, and horses accompanied them, which would help start an agricultural community. Making landfall on the southwest coast of Florida near present-day Charlotte Harbor, they set to work. Very little written records survived from the brief period of this fledgling settlement, but it all came to an abrupt halt in July that same year, when the local indigenous inhabitants ambushed the colonists and wounded Leon himself with an arrow to the thigh. Rushing to nearby Cuba, the settlers brought their beloved governor to Habana for treatment, but he ultimately succumbed to his wounds and died shortly thereafter. He was 60 years old. 
Obviously, Leon never succeeded in finding the so-named Fountain of Youth, and there's even heavy speculation on behalf of historians as to whether he even searched for it in the first place. Scant to no historic evidence surrounding what would otherwise be a major discovery is left, they assert, and the story has mostly been chalked up to an urban legend. Still other scholars believe that the story was fabricated by future explorers to make Leon appear inept or silly, so as to make themselves look superior in their navigational prowess. But what exactly would such a find yield? As previously stated, Native American populations throughout the Caribbean spoke to the explorer about a naturally occurring well whose waters contained restorative powers that not only could reverse the clock as far as aging is concerned, but also heal the sick or wounded, restoring the drinker to perfect health. Naturally, Leon's botched attempt to locate the place led to several other tries in subsequent centuries, and has even entered the popular imagination through such diverse media as the fourth film in the beloved Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, as well as the Lazarus Pit in DC Comics, in which the dead can be submerged in water, only to be brought back to life. Today, in the explorer's honor, a 15-acre park in St. Augustine, Florida, not far from where he landed in that initial expedition in search of the island of Bimini, stands with a sculptor's imagining of the Fountain of Youth. But while Ponte de Leon died before he could find the source to gain immortality, Qin Shi Huang of 3rd century BC China made several direct attempts throughout his life to obtain everlasting existence. Born as Zhao Zheng into the nobility of the Qin state in 259 BC, he became king at just 13 years of age when his father and predecessor, Zhuang Xiang, passed away. At the time, China was a land torn asunder by near-constant conflict. There were seven states in all, Chu, Han, Qi, Qin, Wei, Yan and Zhao, each of which were independent sovereignties who constantly warred with one another for land, power, dominance, and legitimacy. By 230 BC, Qin had emerged as the strongest and most powerful of these clashing states, thanks in large part to Zhao Zheng's ruling with an iron fist. It was during this time that the king sought to bring an end to this period of strife once and for all. One by one, he brought down and subjugated each of the six remaining states, at which time he declared himself emperor over a unified China, the first empire in the country's long history, and a legacy that would last all the way up to the 20th century. Renamed Qin Shi Huang, which literally translates to First Qin Emperor, his reign was one of tyranny. Perhaps one of the most notorious of his campaigns were the several book burnings he ordered that single-handedly destroyed several precious works of ancient literature that are now considered lost. It's important to note, however, that it wasn't all bad. Under him, we see the emergence of a shared Chinese cultural identity, in which his subjects no longer identified as being of the fractured states from which they'd originally come. It's an identity that plays heavily into the modern collective Chinese consciousness. But a handful of assassination attempts, first as the King of Qin, then as China's Emperor, left the monarch increasingly paranoid. So afraid was he of being betrayed, and above all of death, that he soon sought the counsel of his advisors as to how he might ultimately prolong his life. His physicians recommended and administered daily doses of cinnabar, or mercury sulfide, now known to be lethal if ingested, which, as you could imagine, only made his already fragile mental state even worse. As Qin Shi Wang descended further into madness and paranoia, he even went as far as to issue an executive order that extended to the furthest reaches of his fledgling empire. This is attested to in a trove of bamboo wood slips unearthed in an abandoned well in Hunan province in 2002, 48 of which mention the emperor's decree for, quote, elixir that would grant its streaker immortality, unquote. So frantic must his search have been that he even received responses from remote towns and villages. One of the slips, from a place called Duxiang, states that they had not yet found the so-named elixir of life, while another from a village in present-day Shandong province recommended an herb that grew wild in the local mountains. 
Like Ponte de Leon, Qin Shou Wang never did find a cure for mortality, and the very same remedies that were administered to him by his physicians are believed to be what ultimately killed him in 210 BC, at just 39 years of age. Knowing that his search had proven in vain, he set about preparing an elaborate tomb for himself so that he'd be well protected in the afterlife. Several ancient Chinese sources recount the elaborate mausoleum whose construction he'd ordered. A large pavilion-like structure modeled after his own imperial palace, its ceiling was set to mirror the night sky with inlaid pearls for stars, while the floor had several channels running through it full of liquid mercury to reflect the great rivers of China. The tomb has yet to be excavated, but soil samples taken from the ground above it would seem to corroborate these ancient accounts, as there are high levels of mercury present. What has been unearthed, however, is just as remarkable. Less than a mile, or 1.6 kilometers away from the mausoleum, 8,000 life-sized terracotta figures fill three massive pits. Comprised of cavalrymen, horses, infantrymen, archers, and generals, they are, in essence, an army, the guardians of the emperor in the afterlife, ensuring that he will be protected from harm for all eternity. As I mentioned in the opening of this episode, vanity has always been one of the more common, and certainly one of the most untoward of human attributes. As one can see, it can lead to obsessions that always, no matter how hard one tries, fail. The sad truth is that aging and death are fates that await us all, and the best we can do is enjoy each moment while we're here. We may not be able to reverse the clock or avoid our mortality altogether, but we can celebrate each moment so that our lives will not have been in vain. Thanks for listening. I hope this episode shined a light on one of the more universal themes which has troubled humanity from the start. Who among us hasn't longed for the glory days of either our own pasts, or that which preceded us? It's a continuous struggle, one that will undoubtedly haunt us until humanity ceases to exist. If you enjoy interesting, thought-provoking content, please consider becoming a supporter. All you have to do is go to anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button, which will redirect you to three monthly support plans that fit your budget or monetary situation. Listening and sharing also help me in big ways, so please do so wherever you get your podcasts. Join me again next week for another fascinating episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time.